The debate raged on for weeks without end, long after all the observers had lost interest and left. The competitors struggled to make their points in such a way that their opponent would be forced to admit defeat. Yet no such tap-out could be reached, even for such a simple question as this. For or against, should one embrace the void? I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 96 of Embrace the Void, where the only thing not up for debate is that Ben Shapiro is comedy gold. I am your host, Aaron, and with me this week is a fellow lecturer and struggler for the proletariat. Uh, We discuss whether there are ways that the left can do better at making convincing arguments that might lead to social change. Uh, So, comrades, let's rise up and seize the means of discussion. My guest this week is Ben Burgess, author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, and a fellow lecturer at Rutgers University. Ben, would you like to say hi to the void? (laughs) Hello, void. Amazing. Um, I was excited to find out that we actually are cohorts um, that came about as a result of us being at the same sit-in trying to get a proper contract for part-time lecturers at Rutgers. Uh, I was curious, actually, before we dive into the logic stuff, uh, how do you feel about how all of that has turned out? Yeah, I I mean, I'm not crazy about it. So just to give people a little bit of quick background, the the situation is is pretty bad, right? So it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty bad for adjuncts all over the place and you know Rutgers is very far from the worst but uh but that just shows how bad it is uh everywhere else Um, because the you know one of the things that the union has been pushing for for a long time is proportional uh pay so in other words um you know if you teach for example as I have uh most uh most years since I've been here the maximum of classes that you're allowed to teach is a PTL. So that's like, uh, if you, that's like three, uh, one semester and two another between the fall and the spring and then winter and summer are exempted from that. But then under this system, you would get paid. You would have to be paid if, you know, the reason it's, it's the three, two is if you were doing three, three, they would have to call that a full-time job mm-hmm. uh, contractually. They'd be forced to, right? So, uh, so the idea is that if there are non-tenure track NTT full-time lecturers who are being paid, um, you know, who are being paid that full-time salary for teaching, let's say six classes a year and you're teaching five, 
then you would have to be paid five six of their salary, right? Or if they're teaching, mm -hmm. you know, eight, you'd be have to see, you know, be paid five eighths of it, whatever. That you know, proportionally for how many classes you're teaching, and just to be real clear on this, because sometimes people will say, oh, but you know, full you know, full time professors, they're doing research, they're doing committee stuff. We're not talking about that, right? We're just talking about non tenure track lectures mm -hmm. who are full time. Uh, and that would make a huge difference. And of course, we also would also like health insurance. And to be, you know, just, you know, because to live. Uh, but then, that's, a, that's the hard one, too. Like, I was more, I was, I was less surprised that we got somewhat of a pay increase than like, you know, there's just no hope of getting health insurance, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, no, it's that that one is uh, is seems like an even steeper uh, uphill climb, but certainly at least to to meet the wage demands that would you know that would cost Rutgers less. To be clear, I think a little less than three million dollars a year. And to put this into perspective, like you know, just how just how much contempt the administration has for this stuff. Just before that graded, you were talking about. Uh, they actually announced that a bunch of the top administrators at Rutgers were going to get $6 million for uh, incentive bonuses on top of their regular salaries just because they all thought that they did such a good job. Mm. So uh, that's, you know, that's that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. And, you know, without, <laughs> you know, without taking people who might be listening who – you know, who aren't familiar with the sort of nitty gritty of, of union politics at Rutgers through, you know, a deeper dive than we really need to. I would, I guess, just say that, um, you know, that the way things turned out for a variety of reasons, because the full time contract settled mm -hmm. before the before the part time one did. So once the full time contract settled, there wasn't that much negotiating power. And also, frankly, just because I think that, um I think that people took a worse deal uh, than we needed to for various reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, then we ended up with a contract that has, you know, some in incremental gains on various fronts, but, you know, doesn't do anything at all for healthcare. And most PTLs are not getting any meaningful raise, right? That there's a, uh, mm -hmm. that like nothing you'd notice, you know, that so like people who've been around forever, that you know, who like these long-term PTLs, you know, who've, who've been here for like ten years, those people are potentially getting a little bit more money and a little bit more job security. Uh, but unfortunately, because um, because by our nature as contingent faculty, a lot of people don't last that long, right? You know, most people aren't really right. getting anything. And so I, I think that at the very, you know, I've been on the I've been on the executive board of the PTL union for a couple of years. Uh, and, you know, I know all the people who, you know, were involved and negotiated this and who voted, you know, not the way that I did, you know, to uh, take it. And I don't think that it's any of them are, are like bad people or that they're insufficiently committed or they don't care enough or anything like that. But I do think that when you end up with a contract this bad, then, you know, you do have to reevaluate your strategy. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very sympathetic to that ultimate takeaway i was unsurprised by the final result given that i had seen sort of contract negotiations like these in the past and um it, it is frustrating and unfortunate and i mean i guess they get those giant bonuses because they successfully paid people less and, and didn't have their students rioting because of it so like 
that's that's a success on an administrative side of things. But I mean, I think I think you're uh, you've got a, a correct take on a lot of it, um, and it's not entirely biased by your socialist backgrounds. <laughs> um, so you were you have I think I'm I'm currently and you have taught yeah. logic, reason, and persuasion at Rutgers. Yeah. Is that correct? Right? Uh, you mentioned that in your book. Um, have, just yeah. to get us into discussing your book a little bit, when you teach that class, and you, you mentioned in the book that people like sometimes don't understand the purpose of that class, what are the major takeaways that like you're trying to embed into the students? You know, recognizing that they're going to take away you know three concrete ideas and forget everything else, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. Uh, so, I guess. This is something I, I struggle with because because I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, especially having talked about the issue in the book, and I'm not totally happy with the way that I've done that class in the past, which I think is a pretty standard way of teaching in a lot of ways. You know, so there are different things you could do with that class. And I know people who teach in very different ways. Uh, some people are are really into. Um, you know, to talking about like uh, psychological studies that show different mm-hmm. cognitive biases that impact our reasoning. Uh, and that's something that, you know, you can spend a chunk of the class talking about and students always find that interesting. Uh, although I, I'm never quite sure what they're supposed to really take away from that. Right. You know, mm-hmm. you know, like, cause it, it's, um, you know, because of course the really tricky thing about the literature about cognitive biases is that it seems to mostly show that you can't correct for them. Uh, so uh, you're supposed to come away from it with anxiety. I think that's the goal. Yeah, exactly. Manufactured anxiety. Yeah, but I think that the the real the real meat of it, right? You know, I mean, beyond just the sort of some sort of very basic logic class stuff, you might also cover even in the very early stages of a symbolic logic class, uh, is going to have to be the stuff about informal fallacies because mm-hmm. if they're being given anything they can use, that's it. That they have their, um, you know, that they can actually uh, try to to reason better. Right? These are pitfalls that they can avoid, and that you know they can sort of see where reasoning goes wrong and and be less likely to be sort of taken in mm-hmm. by bad reasoning from others, and and you know. We're really going to fantasize about this, you know, less likely to engage with it themselves. Uh, and um, in, I mean, obviously everything I'm saying here is very optimistic, but I mean, like that, that would be the ideal goal of the class, right? You know, that, that like what you really hope for would be some amount of that understanding, of course, that like any class, different people are going to bring, have different levels of, you know, what they put in. Uh, is going to be related to what they take out. Not everybody's going to put in the same amount. Uh, you know, people oftentimes don't remember all sorts of basic things from classes they took in college, you know, the next semester, much less, you know, years later. But the thing is that one of the conclusions that I've actually come to about this is that some of the way that I've taught this class before is probably a mistake. It's a common mistake, but it's a mistake. So in other words, uh, when you're teaching all these informal fallacies, right? You know, you're teaching people how arguments can can go bad. You know that uh, things that you know sound like they're good reasons to accept some conclusion, but really aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, of course, just on a real nuts and bolts level, one issue you're going to run into is well, how are you going to grade people on that? And the obvious way, and if especially if you're a 
overworked adjunct. You're probably working at a couple different colleges at once, you know, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, like the uh, the position that an increasingly large proportion of the people teaching college classes in the United States are in, you know, you want to do it in a relatively time efficient way. And so the obvious thing to do is to uh, is to just like put in a little section on the midterm or the final or whatever test they're taking where they like identify little toy examples of, sure. uh, of these fallacies that, you know, you say, you know, you get like really obvious versions of, you know, like, you know, if you have the, um, the composition fallacy, right. You know, that you might mm-hmm. have something that's like every molecule in the Brooklyn bridge is invisible. Therefore the Brooklyn bridge is invisible, which is an argument that of course nobody would make in real life. Right. But it's, but it's like, if people understand, you know, if people have committed of have it internalized to a reasonable extent, the definition of the fallacy, they'll immediately say, ah, that's a that's an example of the uh, the composition fallacy. A more interesting example, by the way, uh, which I mentioned in the book, is um, the idea that education and upward mobility are uh, solutions to uh, systemic economic inequality, because of mm-hmm. course, even to the extent that it's true, and of course, it's not true for many cases and many reasons, but even to the extent that it's true that any given individual could rise through the class structure and improve their lot that way, right? Of course, it doesn't follow that everybody could do that. Uh, In fact, they couldn't, right? For one thing, um, if everybody, you know, changed class positions, then, you know, we'd all starve to death, you know, because no food would be grown. So, but in any case, like, when you have people identifying these little toy examples, fallacies like that, if that's if that's kind of all you do to test them on it, then you run into. I think, I think there's a legitimate worry there that you are um, an accomplice to people becoming unbearable assholes on the internet. <laughs> uh, right, because, we want them to become just the right kind of assholes on the internet. Right, yeah, this is well, a fine I mean, science of asshole generation. At the very least, we'd like them to be bearable assholes, right? That's right, good. exactly. You know, um, and, and the I, unbearable assholes are the ones who are going around, you know, like uh, doing these little like cocky instant, you know, like instant diagnoses of logical fallacies, you know that. Uh, now, you know, your argument against libertarianism is an example of the, you know, and then they, you know, they rattle off something in Latin. Uh, and of course, what makes those people so unbearable, uh, among other things, is that they have they have such a superficial and silly way of, of using these tools, right? They don't see mm-hmm. them as like pitfalls in reasoning uh, that you should avoid in order to reason better, right? In which case, if that's what you were cared about, then you'd try to like carefully like think you try to reconstruct arguments in your own words think about whether they really commit them you know is there another way of understanding them you you want to slow down and do all that whereas the way they see them are these are kind of uh, like tools for scoring points that these are like yellow cards you can pass out in a debate so right. you know the the faster and more decisive sounding you are in diagnosing them the better and this leads i think to a lot of good people kind of um, rolling their eyes when they hear people use logic talk and certainly logical fallacy talk. Um, and it's it's a really, you know, it's not something I'd like to contribute to, which makes me think, and I'm still kind of thinking about this in terms of courses I'm going to be teaching in the fall, that 
really it's much more time intensive, but a better way of teaching this material would be to find a way to focus on um, to focus on correcting false positives uh, rather, you know, rather than mm-hmm. um, rather than just like focusing on, you know, whether or not people are, are able to correctly identify ridiculous toy examples. Yeah, I mean, I think it's valuable to have them try to apply these things in, in ways where, like, they're not going to feel like if they if they give the wrong ideological answer, they're going to lose points. But, like, for to take the abortion argument, for example, yeah. right, you can talk about how the use of the word person or human is often a form of equivocation in that mm-hmm. argument without necessarily concluding one way or the other about who's right in the debate. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, like I mean, some right, absolutely. And so, of course, there is a there's a real um, fine line to to be walked, you know, with some of this stuff because, as you say, you don't want them to get the sense that they're um, that you know they're being slapped down because of the the content, right? Some of, of them will have that sense no matter what, but yeah. yeah, some people will have that sense no matter what, but you don't want to recklessly encourage it, right? So, right. you know, and and. Honestly, I've always kind of, you know, I mean, I, I might be getting to the point where I'm going to have to rethink this because it might be a losing struggle because, you know, whatever, all my students have Google, you know, but uh, but in the past, I've kind of taken pride in the fact that like oftentimes, you know, students like I, I remember once I was in grad school, I ran into a former student at a May Day protest. He said, oh, I didn't even know you were a leftist, right? It's like, ah, no, nice, right? You know, <laughs> so, mm. so, yeah, you know, like. And so, of course, if, you know, without being too artificial about it, you know, because, of course, it's really true anyway, right? Like, regardless, mm-hmm. you know, that, like, in the context of a logic class, I really genuinely don't care what people's ideological commitments are, right? I, I, I really right. genuinely care about what I'm trying to teach them in that class, which is logic. And I think the same is true of anybody who's going to be teaching that class, right? You know, nobody... Um, you know, nobody really cares like what the conclusions people are, you know, are talking about arguments for are um, just, you know, like that would just be a weird thing to care about in that context. So if you could, of course, you know, because we do all have all of those incurable cognitive biases that, you know, all those studies show, uh, you know, it could be easier to detect fallacies when they're being committed, you know, in arguments for conclusions that we don't like. But, uh, you know, but there are, you know, but I, you know, when you can come up with examples to sprinkle in that are from arguments for conclusions that you do like, right, you know, mm-hmm. then it's nice to sprinkle those in to, to help make that point, right? Like, so you, yeah. you know, you mentioned one abortion example, you know, another fairly straightforward one is, um, you know, begging the question uh, that, you know, uh, when you use when you say that like abortion is wrong because it's murder, abortion is murder and murder is wrong. You know, you're begging the question by assuming mm-hmm. the wrongness of abortion because the concept of wrongness is baked into the concept of murder, right? That's why we don't right. talk about murder and self-defense or, you know, a justifiable murder. Um, so in, you know, but of course, if you're going to do that, then, you know, there's an, if there's in that case, there's a fairly easy way to extend that, which is just to say, Hey, um, Equally, right? If you say the death penalty is wrong because it's uh, because the death penalty is murder and murder is wrong, you know, you're you're assuming the very thing that you're trying to prove, and you know, like in yep. in that particular case, it's an easy extension. But I think if 
if where possible, you can, you know, you can like try to think of ways that you could have structurally similar arguments that commit the same fallacies, their arguments for different conclusions, then that has the virtue of, you know, maybe tricking students into believing what actually happens to be true, which is that what you care about most in this context is getting them to understand, you know, the uh, good and bad argument forms. Right. So yeah, so that's great. Let's let's transfer that into talking about your book sum, which again, given give them an argument logic for the left. And I just wanted to first mention, I laugh every time I look at the cover of your book uh, <laughs> because it it's a picture of David Hume uh, shushing uh, Ben Shapiro, but it looks to me like Ben Shapiro is trying to nibble David Hume's finger, and he's like <laughs> trying to gnaw it off, but he can't because his teeth are too small because he's Ben Shapiro. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. No, that's. Uh... Yeah, that, that picture, uh, which uh, has been pointed out as uh, is approximately life-sized for Shapiro, uh, is um, that was drawn by my friend Ryan Lake, who also does a uh, philosophy web comment called Chaos Pet, which... Um, oh, I actually know Ryan Lake, I think. Yeah, and it, runs, it runs now on the uh, Daily News website also. Mm-hmm. I think he's a listener as well. Um, so so your book, it seems like, right now that we've got your political cards on the table here some, it seems yeah. pretty directly aimed at leftists, what you call, I guess, serious leftists. And I'm curious, like, to define your terms here a little bit, who are sure. serious leftists? What are you, yeah. who are you thinking of? Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's an intentionally vague term, but you can think of it as, like, um, you know, since we use the sometimes we use the word left to mean like um, anybody who's not a Republican. Sometimes we use the word left to mean people who are like revolutionary Marxists. Uh, Sometimes I see people um, and not just people who are like in bad faith or whatever, but people who are making very earnest intra left critiques using the word the left and I have no idea what they mean. Uh, So, um, so uh, serious leftists is just a sort of, vague way of gesturing at a category that I guess we can call um, Bernie. Let's, 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 let's do, let's call it people who are Bernie-ish social Democrats or somewhere to the left of that. So I guess let me, let's, uh, let me ask it this way. Are, are there specific organizing goals that you think should be adopted by someone who wants to be part of the serious left? Sure. Um, so, Again, in um, the the function of the adjective serious there is mostly to demarcate the difference between like leftists and liberals, maybe, right? You know, in other words, um, that, you know, I think at the, from, you know, going from people who, who really have the kind of commitments that I do, you know, that like I'm, uh, I'm a socialist, uh, mm-hmm. in, and I think that uh, I think that we we actually you know we actually need to fundamentally reorganize uh, the you know economic basis of society. But like even even well short of that, I think that like um, you know being like thinking that like uh, that single payer health insurance is pretty non negotiable, right? I mean like that's mm-hmm. the that's the sort of thing that you know the sort of the sort of political commitments that I have in mind. Uh, so the, the purpose of it is it isn't really to uh, to draw any new lines in the sand, but just to sort of say that uh, that it seems to me that among people who are in this vague, admittedly vague category I'm talking about, there is a phenomenon of people who sort of 
aren't really as as interested in in thinking about the tools of logic as I'd like them to be. You know, if you if you think about, for example, the uh, mm-hmm. the podcast Chapo Trap House, that's a fairly good signifier for this, right? That uh, yeah, they have there's a sort of there's a sort of persistent joke that they've they've been making since since it started about you know about the kind of like annoying like online logic dweeb. And, um, and, you know, like they, they took it to the point where like the Chapo book, uh, is subtitled manifesto against logic, facts and reason. But of course that's a joke and I have no interest in policing the extent to which it's, you know, the, the percentage of jokiness <laughs> versus right. the serious core that might be there. That's the least funny thing you can do with the joke. Uh, but that there's, but that it's certainly a manifestation of an attitude that I'm trying to push back against. For a few different reasons, one of which is uh, is that I think that when we kind of don't attend as much as I think maybe we sometimes should to the arguments, right? When like if you sort of go, you know, look on uh, you know on Twitter or listen to certain kinds of popular podcasts and the milieu that I'm talking about, uh, mm. you know, you sometimes get the sense that. Uh, increasingly, a lot of people's only tools for pushing back against the right, or for that matter, like you know, neoliberal centrists, uh, is either mockery or moral condemnation or some combination of the two. And I'm not against any of those things, right? They like I, you know, I, there are certainly things that deserve to be morally condemned, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, God knows, I don't know how you're supposed to get through life if you can't mock anything. But uh, but I think that the danger of those are the only tools in our arsenal is that one, we're going to lose a lot of winnable people because if you never get around to showing exactly what's wrong with the other side's arguments, then there are there's going to be a certain percentage of your potential audience who will, who will eventually come to the conclusion you don't have a good response. And two, if mockery and moral condemnation are our only tools when we're you know pushing back against the right, then when disagreements arise on the left, as of course they... They have been arising approximately every 15 minutes since the French Revolution. Then those are inevitably going to be the tools that we turn on each other, and you know, which is what gets you, for example, left Twitter, and unfortunately, not just Twitter, right? You know, I, I think that mm-hmm. that when intra-left disagreements are only processed through those tools, then uh, then we uh, then I think that you end up getting a really toxic and alienating kind of culture, you know, the sort of way that everybody is is applying those tools to each other. Uh, and, and I guess a, la- a last point I make about this is, is that um, getting back to your question about how to differentiate what I'm loosely referring to as the serious left as opposed to, um, you know, things that might broadly be called the left or you might just think of as liberals or whatever. Um, one of the ways that I would differentiate those categories has to do with um, how they tend to think about not just not just specific policy goals, but like how they tend to think on a more abstract level uh, about politics. So in very often the sense that you get from more kind of mainstream liberals is that it, there's this sort of technocratic idea that you know what you really, you know, the way that you're going to get positive policy results uh, is from empowering the right group of wonks who are going to come up with, 
wonky technical solutions that you wouldn't really understand anyway, so don't worry about it, right? Like if you, like if, for example, the 2016 election, hmm. even if you're as politically obsessed as I am and you are like watching the news all the time and reading the newspaper regularly and stuff, I don't think that most people who even were engaged on that level, much less most people, really had any idea exactly what Hillary Clinton's like healthcare proposals were. Like they had kind of a sense that she said that the ACA needed to be improved on somehow or another, but I don't think most people could really tell you because what you had was sort of vague rhetoric about how it should be improved somehow or another. And then maybe if you wanted to go to the next level, you could read like a, you know, 75 page policy paper on her website. Um, And so I, I think that, Mm-hmm. One, if you have that kind of technocratic attitude towards politics, then uh, then your message essentially about how we're going to solve different social problems is, you know, just trust us, right? Okay. Whereas, so <laughs> whereas if you think that you have have to mobilize like mass grassroots organizing to get anything done politically, then it's actually much more important that you be able to to convince a majority of people to to line up behind your political program. And which is yet another reason I think that we should, that I want people, you know, not, you know, I mean, not people who are like philosophy grad students or, you know, or people who are, you know, PTLs, Rutgers or whatever, right? Those people already care enough about arguments, but people in this broader milieu to, to care more about arguments than sometimes they do. Okay. So there was a lot to unpack there, certainly. Um, and I think I about half agree, at least with your argument. So I want to try to slow you down a little bit here and, and work through some of that a little bit. Sure. Um, the reason I started off by asking about who, who sort of qualifies as the left, because, you know, if you're your thesis is somewhat that the left often doesn't care about these things enough. And it's important that we figure out who we're actually sort of talking sure. about here. And so let me ask you about two uh, specific individuals uh, nice. without diving too deep, right? Do Would you qualify, and maybe you're going to laugh at this question, would you qualify Elizabeth Warren and Ezra Klein as being leftists or liberals or something else? Well, Ezra Klein certainly has historically been somebody who's pretty firmly on the liberal side of that divide. Uh, whether or not that exactly describes his current position, I'd actually be slightly less confident about because it seems to me he's been trending very left. Yeah, that he's. I think there. I think a lot of people who are like that have probably shifted shifted their orientation somewhat lately. Uh, like, well, or like Matt Iglesias, right? He's uh, mm-hmm. who I'm just picking on because, like, I'm. I have like a you know I'm a little bit more familiar with some of his recent stuff than Klein, some of Klein's recent stuff, um, you know. But like both of those guys were people who, like in 2016, uh, were you know were very dismissive of of Bernie Sanders of any kind of sweeping social democratic agenda, thought that like proposals for Medicare for all were really unserious, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's kind of their trajectory, right? I mean, like those are, you know, I mean, Ezra Klein back in the day supported the war in Iraq, you know. Um, And so, but that said, I think some Klein Iglesias style wonks have probably been drifted a little bit in a, what I would consider a better direction politically in the last couple of years. Would Uh, you say the same for Warren? And Warren, yeah. So what I would say about Warren is that um, I think she's I think she's 
choose gray zone. Like I think that um, I think that Warren um, is certainly not like a neoliberal. You know, uh, she's she's certainly on. You know, she's. You know, she's certainly the you know second most progressive candidate in the race, or at least out of out of the you know the twenty or thirty most serious of the candidates. But she's also not quite a Bernieish social democrat either, right? So what? She's so capitalist. What, she says so. Yeah, yeah. She well, yeah. So that's so that's part of it, right? That she that she describes. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, she actually. So I agree with that. you that the like like branding aside, they functionally have very similar. I mean, like her wealth taxes is yeah. basically a socialist goal, right? Yeah. Like So so putting aside branded, right? Let's let's apply. You know, the uh, late great Rutgers philosopher Derek Parfit's bottom up principle before we uh, mm. uh, before we worry about what like sort of big conceptual labels to put on people. Let's think about why the difference matters, right? So right. Um, in. Uh, and I would say about that uh, that there is a lot of policy similarity, of course, right? That there's, I mean, I would assume that in any scenario um, whereby like Bernie Sanders uh, actually pulled off the nomination, I'd be pretty shocked if anybody but Elizabeth Warren was his running mate because I don't know who else would even make sense ideologically mm. uh, who's at the right level politically. Sure. But that said, I think there are a couple of, of telling differences between them, even branding aside, which is why I put Elizabeth Warren in kind of a gray zone between like maybe leftism and liberalism, uh, which are one that she just comes out of a very different background, which gives her a very different way of thinking about politics uh, in terms of what I was just talking about, about whether you have to kind of you think you sort of have to mobilize a certain kind of grassroots support or not. Uh, I think that, you know, Warren started out life politically as a moderate Republican and of course has gotten further and further left since then. But I think she still kind of thinks to a great extent, like a, uh, like a kind of technician of the regulatory state, right. You know, what's exactly the right sort Mm -hmm. of regulatory tweak that we can give things to, um, to get the right uh, policy results. Whereas I think because Sanders has had the opposite trajectory, right? He started out life as a radical socialist um, in the Ypsil Young People's Socialist League, which is like the youth wing of the Socialist Party. And he's moderated somewhat over the decades because, you know, it's sort of impossible not to when you're in the position that he's been in, you know, that it's that, you know, sort of to one extent or another, you are going to assimilate into the D.C. board. But he uh, he isn't... um, but he, but only to an extent, right? So, and I think he still, to a large extent, thinks in terms of clashes of interests and in terms of in terms of mass struggle as what mm-hmm. you need to do to achieve political results that like overcome the will of entrenched elites, right? I mean, when yeah. like when he started using the phrase "political revolution," that was that was the point he was making that you that it's only possible to achieve this agenda if you have some kind of mass shakeup from below. And I think over time, rhetorically, that phrase has just kind of drifted to the point where it's almost meaningless now, right? But that was the original meaning. Uh, and then I Fair think enough. The other- um, I didn't want yeah. to dive into like a fight between and, and like you know sure, who, sure. Who, who's the most leftist here. Like I, I no, uh, certainly no, agree I, that Bernie is farther left, and I certainly I just wanted to like sure. I, guess, I think you made a good point that the examples of individuals who I would point to as individuals on the left who I do think 
are making arguments who might provide some counterexamples to your your thesis yeah. there a little bit are individuals who are are liberals who have trended left in some ways and you could argue that some of this is a bit of a current events kind of thing and i mean i do think that there is a trend and i've talked about this some before in the left especially um coming out of you know some of the postmodern traditions but but just also some of the um i think just culturally developed uh, uh left being more kind of openly accepting in a lot of ways uh has led to a a shift away from those kinds of arguments to some extent so i mean i think i agree with part of your thesis in that uh kind of way um i'm curious though uh, to apply this some um, to debates between these two groups yeah i was just gonna say to be clear it's certainly you know uh since, since you use the word counterexample there i want to be really clear about this right you know that it's I, i'm not um i'm certainly not claiming that you know that like there's nobody on, oh sure right you know there's this there's, there's nobody who's even much more firmly in the camp that i'm talking about than the elizabeth warrens of the world uh who who isn't making excellent arguments right you know that like you right. know I, I, arguing I mean, for more of it which i i agree with i think yeah, yeah. I, I i want more of it but that doesn't mean that like you know that doesn't mean that you know that uh that your noam chomsky is and your nathan robinson's and all these people you know aren't like out sure. there you know doing exactly <laughs> your noam's chomsky i think is how that's done what's that your noam's chomsky i think is the correct uh Okay, pluralizing yeah. there. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, yeah, you're Dobbs Chomsky. That's right. Yeah. So, amongst the conservative side of this, right? Since this is, you know, yeah. written in a in a politically specific kind of way, what fallacies do you feel like are are major issues that come up frequently that you would sort of want to highlight for people who are going to dive into these kinds of discussions? Uh, sure. So, two that come to mind. That I mean, because of course, just you know, most. Um, you know, I mean, most forms of bad reasoning, as we were talking about earlier, you know, can, you know, arise in all sorts of contexts. But yeah, two that I think uh, at least certain forms of right wing thought are very prone to uh, are uh, begging the question and the continuum fallacy. So the mm-hmm. uh, so in terms of begging the question, uh, I think that. Uh, this is something that uh, is well, especially I think the libertarian right uh, is is very prone to because in uh, there's a sort of well, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe to a certain extent this is even the result of libertarianism being like, without exaggerating the point, you know, like a relatively cons- a relatively internally consistent, you know, kind of well thought out framework. Uh, which which means that you know one of the dangers of having a consistent, well thought out framework is that you kind of, on some level, forget that not everybody accepts your fundamental assumptions, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, and that you end up making all these arguments that that kind of only make sense if you assume the things about that framework that are the most deeply controversial to begin with, right? So, uh, like like for example, uh, the idea that um, you know, when people make arguments that, you know, like taxation, you know, is wrong because it's theft or that, you know, redistribution um, violates the non, you know, is bad because mm-hmm. it violates the non-aggression principle. All of these things kind of have at their base the idea that people are morally entitled to the property that they 
kind of they have to start out with or end up with from free market processes that like that's you kind of have to assume that for any of those arguments to get it off the ground but of course that's the very issue and dispute right so mm-hmm. that would be uh begging the question for libertarians and i think something that probably applies uh probably even more maybe to like more traditionalist kind of social conservatives rather than libertarians uh is the uh the continuum fallacy right where you say uh you infer from the existence of gray areas that are hard to classify that there isn't a, a real distinction or mm-hmm. clear cases on both sides of that distinction. Uh, and so this is something that, you know, and it, I mean, I'm not, you know, asserting that, you know, of course that leftists never commit either of these things I'm talking about they do, right. but like, you know, uh, but uh but you know, when you say, for example, like there's a uh, there's a video of our uh, cover model Ben Shapiro where he's um, he's talking about uh, about abortion and he says, well, you know, if the uh, if that's not a you know if the you know fetuses you know aren't pe- you know aren't people then what's the you know where do you draw the line right is it at six weeks where you can have a heartbeat and this and that and the other thing is it at you know two months where you have whatever you know, whatever uh, characteristics you get, you know, in, uh, the developing fetus at two months, is it, you know, three months with this and that, and the other thing. And of course, it's very rhetorically effective, but if you actually slow down and think about it, uh, you could just as easily use that as an argument that there's no such thing, there's no such thing as baldness because, you know, because uh, it's it's very, you know, is it at exactly 50 hairs, right? Is it 60 hairs? And the sort of underlying mistake would be the same. Right. These sort of continuum arguments that people often think of as slippery slopes, right? Where it's if you if you can't draw a line, then there's not gonna be any way to stop, you know, going towards infanticide or something like that, right? You're undermining things all the way down. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, you know, those those fallacies do come up on the left as well. And this is something that I, I try to talk about with my logic students as well, that Good fallacies, you know, like you mentioned earlier, good fallacies aren't, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge is invisible because nobody believes that. Good fallacies are mimics of good arguments, right? They are just close enough to a good argument to be compelling. Um, And that raises, I think, an important concern, which is like as we're debating these particular hard cases a lot of the time, how do you know when someone is engaging in a fallacy rather than engaging in a, you know, reasonable argument where you just don't quite see it the same as them yet. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, I mean, obviously I don't think that there is a, a good simple answer to that question basically right. because the, the phenomenon, you know, that, uh, that makes it a, you know, that the question's about, right. Kind of precludes that, you know, that there's that if there was a, if there was an easy uh, formula that we could use for deciding when one of these was the case, we wouldn't have to worry about it. But then, uh, but I do think that there are some things that we can do to, to help. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is uh, one of them is just teaching people to not do what some of the people, are, you know, that, that, uh, uh, who I, I started out talking about earlier, all too often do, which is to really valorize, um, like speed, right. And, uh, and, sure. you know, take, the it, it, take it apart arguments and, and really 
really, if anything, we should we should be doing the opposite, right? We should be uh, we should be valorizing like really taking your time and, and thinking carefully about it because that's what's most likely to at least minimize uh, the rate of false positives. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I think that I think that just um, just getting people to uh, to try to slow down and uh, and also I, I think there are certain like really simple tricks that do help a lot here, um, like teaching people to uh, before they kind of diagnose an argument to try to you know to try to uh, rephrase it in their own words. Mm-hmm. Uh, at which point they might get a better sense of how the different parts of it are supposed to fit together. Right. As you highlight, though, um, you know, incons- like even when we slow down, right? What we're trying to do is mm-hmm. often find inconsistencies. Yeah. Um, but as as philosophers who've studied hard issues know, often what you get are are two inconsistent positions which have advantages and disadvantages, and they can often be resolved in multiple directions. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think that that means that like the majority of arguments, a lot of arguments, are going to remain sort of fundamentally unsettled? Uh, well, maybe. So, I guess it's certainly in philosophy. I think that um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, something I often tell students at the beginning of the semester um, in like an intro to philosophy class uh, is, you know, or sometimes even like an ethics class is that, you know, when you can think of different disciplines on a kind of continuum. So, uh, you know, we think about the way that, evidence functions and you know the hard sciences certainly on the, on the one hand and on the other end of the spectrum we can think about literature like in um that there's a certain sense in which a work of literature can change your mind about something that you know you think oh after you know i read that novel and you know i i never saw things that way before right you know mm-hmm. and so like it could lead you to change your perspective, but it's a very different sense of changing your mind than the one at issue uh, when you like run an experiment and show that, uh, and show that something, you know, that like, and and falsify a prediction and philosophy is in a a sort of fuzzy, messy gray area between these two things with overlap on both ends. And, you know, there's, there's philosophy that that borders on being science. There's philosophy that borders on being literature and a Mm -hmm. lot of, and I, but I think a well, you know, without making any kind of claim about necessary and sufficient conditions or anything, uh, something that's characteristic of philosophical questions is that there's just going to be a lot more room for thoughtful, well-informed, sincere people to uh, to disagree than there's going to be in physics, right? Not that there's no room in physics, right? Physicists disagree with each other all the time, even though they have access to the same evidence. You know, when it right. comes to certain high-level theoretical questions, but uh, but there's there's just gonna, there just is going to be a lot more room in philosophy because uh, very oftentimes the the kinds of things that we are thinking and talking about uh, in in philosophy, um, you know, there are you know there's certainly a spectrum of better and worse arguments, uh, and you know there there are arguments that are just terrible and there are arguments that are you know flawed and interesting or you know but like um and there's a whole separate spectrum about persuasive 
Yeah. There are terrible well, arguments that are really persuasive. Yeah, right. There are terrible arguments that convince lots of people. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess given all so, that, I, I, I think that like, even if you're, I think it's characteristic of philosophical questions, you know, uh, that, that there's, that to a certain extent, it's going to be a judgment call, right? That you, you sort of say, oh, there are some like pretty good arguments you can make on this side or that side of, of, of the question. And, and, um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, a, sometimes it's a matter of balancing them. Uh, and certainly when you move into like um, moral arguments, uh, I, you know, I've got a, I've got enough of a, of a, anti-realist streak about all that stuff to um to really... just... what's that we gotta include a little bit of that maybe yeah yeah, I yeah disagree uh, firmly on that one okay okay well, yeah that, i mean that, that gets to another thing that i would like i mean there's a couple of things that I, i'm interested in what you've been saying sure. here right yeah. like it's not just philosophy where there's this ambiguity it's politics right it's um because a lot of politics is ethics in a larger mm-hmm. framework and so it's based in value disagreements a lot of the time um do you think that it is functional or viable to have disagreements about values and about morality and do you think that it changes people's minds yeah uh so yeah quite this is uh so this is a really important point because you know, one of the of the central points of the book, of course, is to is to get people in my corner to uh, to care more about the arguments. But then I also think that just to be intellectually honest about this, we shouldn't overstate uh, what a good argument can do, right? So right. Uh, there's so because a lot of uh, political disagreements aren't really a matter. You know, look. It's not to say that there aren't lots of persuadable people who you should be trying to persuade. Of course there are, but a lot of political disagreements uh, stem from conflicting values. Uh, and of course, you can have arguments about those, but um, even, you know, in, in a sense, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever you think about the sort of really hard meta ethical questions, which I probably shouldn't have uh, shouldn't have brought up because all of my thoughts about them are way too scattered and half-baked you know but uh, make it saved by the bell it may have to be another episode excellent yeah but uh whatever you think about those issues it's it's almost it's almost going to be irrelevant here because uh even if um you know even if it's like objectively correct to hold certain values or whatever that doesn't mean that everybody's going to or that they're going to uh you know they're going to be made to you know, that like if that they're going to be made to care about the right things mm-hmm. just by the force of your arguments. And then, of course, to, um, you know, to bring in the Kami Pinko element, all of this, uh, oftentimes what you have is not just sort of psychologically contingent differences in values, but you have, um, you have deep clashes of interests and, mm-hmm. uh, and people, people who's, people whose interests are served by given arrangements, uh, you know, tend to be by and large, not always, right. You know, you've got your, you know, Friedrich Engels and whatnot, you know, but like they, they tend to, most of them are going to find ways of rationalizing that. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think, you know, you could, uh, you know, you could, uh, 
you could use the uh, the time machine from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure to go get Immanuel Kant and you know uh, and John Stuart Mill and a few more of these guys, and you know you could assemble them as a team and you could give them a year to prepare. And there's no moral argument they would come up with that would get Jeff Bezos to uh, give away his billions or even be nicer to people in the warehouses. I'm pretty sure he blocked them immediately. <laughs> so you know something they would, in his defense, they would be some of the most pedantic assholes on Twitter. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if if we agree then that yeah. there is there are limits to discourse, right? Yeah. There are points at which the 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 disagreement has gone as far as it's going to go. Do you think that, and this, you know, without getting you in trouble, um, <laughs> there there are points at which use of force or violence or something that goes beyond the discourse is necessary for bringing about the right ends when you can't reach you know, pure rational consensus. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just to be, and I think we could also minimize the amount of trouble uh, here by disambiguating two questions, which are, are there points at which in one way or another, you're what you need to do, you know, maybe you can convince enough people to impose their will in one way or another on those who you haven't convinced, which I think is really the core of your question from mm-hmm. like, the sort of tactical and strategic and maybe even moral questions about like use of violence and things like that. Right. So like, right, right. you know, like, like in other words, like I think that. Right. It's one thing to say this is when we start punching Nazis versus <laughs> this is when we're going to use the government to uh, require that you desegregate your schools. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it's, and I, and I think that it's, we're uh, relatively lucky to be in a situation like we are in uh, the contemporary United States, which is to say that the honest answer to this, the second question, right, is lines up with the politic answer, because I think the idea of like armed insurrection, you know, in an American context would just be totally delusional. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, you know, which obviously, you know, it might be, I'm not a pacifist. I think it might be actually necessary in certain kinds of times and places, but certainly, but yeah, certainly use yeah. of one way or another of, of the majority imposing its will on the on minority, ranging from winning elections and then using the power of the state to redistribute or expropriate uh, to uh, to you know labor strikes and you know and other tools like that that are uh, that are at their core uh, about uh, about things other than you know trying to persuade the other side to see it your way. Yeah, I get you. I'm a, a you know techno liberal crat, uh, social justice, uh, social contract guy who thinks that the government should just do the do the enforcing of the pluralist society for for us. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I like the, uh, I, I, I sort of um, uh-huh. I, I like that image. By the way, I'm, I'm just kind of I've uh, been rewatching The Sopranos lately, and I'm sort of uh-huh. thinking of like some you know like a sort of meme with some guy in a tracksuit, you know, like with this you know fist in his hand, you know, as the enforcer of uh, the pluralist society. I mean, Hobbes wasn't wrong about a lot of things, is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, but he was wrong about moral realism, but we'll save that for another time. So, yeah, so we, uh, I think we should get on over to Making the Void Livable. Do you have any final yeah. thoughts? Um, no, no, I, I think we covered it. Great. All right. So yeah, so this week for Making the Void Livable, I was going to give a special thanks and shout out to, and you feel free to hop in here with your own suggestions, to the joys of recreational summer reading. 
Uh, As a fellow teacher, I sure you understand that like there are months out of the year where you read nothing but philosophy and it's it's it makes you hate reading, I think, sometimes. Right. Like not your book, obviously, your book is uh, (laughs) amazing and everyone should should pick it up because it's fun. Um, But like, you know, you read paper after paper and it's just it's grueling. And then you like you get to read some science fiction or something, Mm -hmm. whatever you love. And it like you remember that that words on a page don't have to be painful, that it can be enticing and pull you in. Um, yeah, what have you been reading? So this, I've been reading, uh, I, you know, I, I do this other podcast, Philosophers in Space, so I've been like getting through a bunch of suggestions from listeners, and they've all been amazing. Uh, so, so far this summer, I've read um, The Power, which is incredible. Uh, the Player of Games, which is oh, really yeah. good. It's uh, Ian Banks, right? Ian Banks. Yeah, it's my first thing, Banks book, and I loved it. I'm, I'm big into gamification, so it was really, it was a big thing for me. I'm Right now I'm reading Three Body Problem, which is also excellent. Uh, I've been reading some of um, When Will We Have Black Future Month, uh, which is some really great um, uh, neo-African futurist stuff. Uh, yeah, what about you? Uh, any... Uh, recreational reading that you would recommend recently? Uh, well, recently, uh, <laughs> or you know, within the past twenty years. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, because I was going to say recently, uh, the summer hasn't really been the uh, opportunity to read that it might have might be under other circumstances. You know, uh, since the books come out, a lot's been going on. But but yeah, I was well, I was I was listening to the stuff you were mentioning. I would actually mention so one thing that I was. Uh, one class that I was really happy to be able to teach while I was at Rutgers uh, was uh, last, uh, yeah, last year, last so like spring 2018, I got to teach this class, uh, Philosophical Ideas in Science Fiction, mm-hmm. which was a great chance to, uh, you know, read a lot of science fiction to uh, to prepare for class, and uh, we, you know, which I guess risks ruining it, but you know, but didn't have that effect. Uh, <laughs> it makes it almost okay. In in my case. Um, But yeah, so let's see. uh, Ted Chang, The uh, Story of Your Life and Others. uh, That's a short story Mm -hmm. collection. Um, That's one thing that definitely comes to mind that I liked a lot. Um, It's not something I read for this class, but you're talking about Ian Banks. uh, And I actually really like a lot of Ian Banks's uh, endless stuff, right? So if Mm. uh, he wrote his Ian M. Banks for science fiction, what is his science fiction writing and for his more in his, you know, uh, realist fiction was just as Ian Banks. Uh, and some of those were also really good. Like there's one called the Crow road. I liked a lot. And, mm-hmm. uh, another Scottish science fiction writer and actually a, a friend of Ian Banks, uh, who I'm a big fan of is, uh, Ken McLeod, uh, who, um, who wrote a series of, uh, books. Understanding comics, right? That, is that, uh, that McLeod? Is the guy understanding comics guy? Am I thinking of the right McLeod? I don't think so. So uh, yeah, I'm really bad with getting the wrong names. Uh, <laughs> Ken McLeod. He uh, so he wrote um, this uh, this uh, well, not really a series of books, but some loosely related books uh, called uh, "There's the Fall Revolution" is the sort of name, the sort of collective name of them. Mm-hmm. One of them was called the Stone Canal. Uh, one of them's uh, called the uh, the Star the Star Fraction and Anyway, the uh, the the Cassini division, and I forget the name of the other one, but um, the Sky Road—that was the name of the other one. But anyway, but one one thing he's he's really good at, which I, I find very charming, is that he'll have in a lot of his novels, he'll use uh, 
like like age extension technology as a plot device. So you can have, mm. you know, they're like some chapters that are set in the 1990s and, you know, some in the 22nd century and they have the same characters in them. Uh, and, and it makes it feel like oddly grounded while he's doing a lot of conceptually zany science fiction things. Nice. Well, this has been a lot of fun, but sadly I've got to wrap it up. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Yeah. So uh, one place they can find me is every Tuesday night on uh, the Michael Brooks show, which is a YouTube show and podcast. Uh, uh, There's a segment that I do in there called the debunk, um, which is, I guess about what it sounds like. We take apart apart bunk furniture, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. You got it. And I also, even though I haven't put anything out the last couple of weeks, generally speaking, I've been doing YouTube videos every Monday on uh, the Zero Books YouTube channel. That's my publisher for Give Them an Argument. And last but not least, uh, you know, see above, re totally inadequate uh, adjunct wages. Uh, I have a, a Patreon, which if you subscribe to that, that's just patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. They, I, I have a, a couple of kind of short essays a week, one of which is always about a patron-suggested topic. Great. Awesome. Well, I thanks for having me on, and I officially challenge you to a debate about moral realism, so we'll have to <laughs> schedule right. that at some point in the future. All right, let's do it. All right, thanks very much. Thank you so much to everyone who makes this show possible. Uh, thank you to my editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, and to GW for the music. And thank you to all of our listeners, and especially our $20 and up patrons, including Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existens made my pussy throb, the person who controls the spice controls the void, volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org, Philosophy Book Club will live again, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And thanks especially to our top-tier patron, Dave Maslich. Y'all, you are so amazing. Thank you for being so patient while I got the show caught up, and I promise that I will get back on patron rewards very soon. Um, If you would like to get more voidiness in your life, check us out on Twitter at ETVPod and subscribe to uh, my other show, Philosophers in Space. And also come join the Philosophers in Space Facebook group, which also serves as the Embrace the Void group. I promise you won't regret it. If you want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 